Are you interested in vintage clothing, secondhand shopping, the reselling community, history, or all of the above? Then this is the show for you. My name is Rebecca, and I'm here to talk to you about other people's things. I'm here not only to discuss the material aspect of clothing, but our relationship as a society to other people's things and how we go about obtaining them, selling them, finding them, and sharing them. Today, I have a very special guest. Her name is Erin, and she's a vintage enthusiast who wears many hats. I am so excited to have you here today, Erin. Can you tell us just a little bit about yourself? Yes, thank you so much for having me. I'm so excited to be here. I've been quite a fan of everything that you've been posting and advocating for, so I'm honored to be a part of this. Um, my name is Erin. A lot of people online know me as Gwendolyn or Gwendolyn's Golden Eras, which is my Instagram and my store I sell under. So, um, I, like you said, I, I do wear many hats, uh, very literally <laughs> and figuratively. I have been selling for a long time and I've been dabbling in many different things wherever I can share my passion for history or vintage clothing. I, I find a way or an avenue to share that love with everyone the best I can. So yes, I have my hand in a lot of cookie jars in the vintage world. <laughs> Yes. And it's so funny because before I ever even met you, I bought hats from you on eBay. And I remember thinking to myself how happy I was that someone was selling things for an affordable price that was in my budget that I could access. And it's it's hilarious to me that now I'm talking to you and after I've been shopping with you for years, it's it's just kind of so funny, funny how these things work out. And that makes me so happy to hear yeah, that someone is appreciating is. them. And I know that they're going to a good home with you. So that makes me even happier. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I was going to start off with a question that is just going to be a little bit more lighthearted. I was going to ask what your favorite era of vintage is to wear and what are some of like maybe the item that you feel like is your favorite right now or one of the most wonderful things that you've bought that you really are happy to own. Yeah, so um, that is a can of worms in itself. Um, I started out not really knowing what direction I was ever going to go in with wearing vintage. I think kind of like how most of us do when we get started. Um, I have always gravitated towards the 30s and 40s fashion. And only in the last few years, I have truly began to understand um, how to properly put that together and what that looks like. So I have a very extensive collection of 30s and 40s hats, more than I know what to do with or where to put them. Um, <laughs> I wear a lot of that silhouette on a daily basis. That's my go-to. And I would say my most prized possession is a suit that I have by Gilbert Adrian, who is known for designing Ooh. for the Wizard of Oz, most famously. He also designed for every old Hollywood celebrity you can think of, like Joan Crawford. He was uh, the one who gave her those recognizable large shoulders in all of her movies that 
you know, became the trend of the 40s. So um, he's my favorite. And I'm so honored to say that I have a piece that he helped design. And my husband actually bought that for me for Christmas a few years ago. So definitely the most special thing I own. Wow, what a wonderful husband you have. <laughs> that is such a lovely story. I'm so glad that you gave us a little bit of history on that too, because yeah. I remember always noticing and remarking while watching old movies, like, oh, gowns by Adrian. That's so interesting that someone has a credit just for making gowns, not the whole wardrobe, but just gowns. And I always thought it sounded so so extra and just kind of fancy. And his his stuff is beautiful. Oh my That's gosh. so special that you're able to have one of his suits. What color is it? Yes, um, it's actually a white. I don't think it's a gabardine. I think even the label says what material it is. I don't know off the top of my head. Um, it was for a very brief period. I think in the mid to late 40s, he had some British material he was using. It's almost like a wool cotton blend and a very light cream color. And the shoulders, I mean, they feel like they're made with cement. They're so structured and big and bulky, but I love it. I love how it looks. And I know a lot of people aren't a fan of that silhouette because you just look like you have football player shoulders but it wins my heart over. That's my favorite. <laughs> I think it works well as a look if you have dainty shoulders, which I am lucky enough to say that I do. So I love the big shoulder pad looks because I, yeah. it kind of emphasizes the fact that mine are a bit more narrow. It balances yeah. me out. <laughs> exactly. It totally works. And I think maybe that was his goal to make women look a little more proportional. I don't know. I, that's just a theory, but it definitely gives you a silhouette where you are like an hourglass when you wear that. <laughs> yeah. It's, it's like a powerful look too, which yes. I think that's why the power suit in the eighties and nineties came back so hard with those inspirations, which I love oh, to yeah. talk about that sort of thing. But I just remember, I remember thinking whenever I was a kid that shoulder pads were kind of gross and it, right. it was such a distinct look, but I didn't even realize where they came from. And now I have yeah, such an appreciation too. for them, but it's just so interesting, the parallels. <laughs> yeah, a hundred percent. So I could go so, into a whole other tangent about yeah. how, well, the eighties didn't do it like the forties. It's different. It's the same look and silhouette, but the shoulder pads are just not as well made. And, oh, if only. <laughs> Yeah, I know. I know. They tried, though. I'll give they them tried. credit for trying. <laughs> so next, can you tell me a little bit about your experiences of getting into the vintage scene and how you came to know so much about reselling and collecting and history behind fashion? Yeah, so I have been wearing and collecting vintage uh, seriously. Uh, intentionally for about 10 years now. I started as a teenager. I I grew up thrifting, I think, like a lot of us did. Um, I, I would always go with my mom. When everybody else was going back to school shopping, we'd go back to thrift store shopping. <laughs> it was always good for us <laughs> being on a budget. 
<laughs> I can't really name many instances where we would buy brand new. It would have to be something very special if we're an occasion, if that's, you know, where my mom was taking me. So um, it was great because we could always buy so much for so little. And um, I just was always used to going there. So eventually I had a group of friends I would go thrifting with all the time in high school. And that's kind of during that Tumblr phase where you would wear uh, those hipster styles. I hate to use that word, but you know, that's what we were doing. And uh, <laughs> kind of like yeah. the boho chic look. And sometimes while looking for that stuff and buying it, I was unintentionally buying vintage clothing. So I ended up acquiring a lot of it without really thinking anything of it. I knew it was older, but that was never the goal. And I ended up gravitating towards those pieces so much, especially having a love for old Hollywood and old Hollywood movie stars. I would watch a lot of those films growing up and always wanting to be like them. But I never thought I could dress like them because it just wasn't socially acceptable or trendy. So I would do that for fun. In my free time, I I had a lookbook. I don't know if you've ever heard of that, but it's a platform where you can share your clothing looks on. Kind of before Instagram really took off, there was lookbook for the fashion people. And I was obsessed with some girls on there that were dressing in vintage clothing. So it made me a little motivated to do it on my own. So my mom would always take pictures of me for fun. And I started fashion blogging. So eventually those looks that I was doing for fun became a part of my personal style. And I started buying a lot of reproduction brands or pinup clothing, you could say, stuff I wouldn't wear now. But back then I thought, wow, I look so vintage. And I would share that on that platform. <laughs> <laughs> so... um it molded into the monster that I am now with vintage. It just, it progresses. And a lot of people that I've talked to have a similar beginning story with getting into it. Just, you know, starting in pin up, then reproduction, then true vintage. I think that's just how it kind of goes for us. And uh, that's pretty much what happened with me. So the collecting eventually turned into hoarding. The hoarding eventually turned into selling because what do I do with all of this? I don't have enough space for it. So I ended up starting a store online with all this extra stuff I had accumulated. And I was in school at the time, a fashion school in Dallas called Weed College. I started out in fashion design I had all these big goals and dreams for a label of my own, but I didn't know how to properly sew, and that definitely hindered my ability to progress in the program, and I had a teacher who was not patient with me, and I was to blame for breaking a machine or two while I was there, and they had to have people come and professionally repair the machine, so I said, you know what? I am done. I had a friend at the time and we both transferred into the merchandise marketing program because we both were trouble and you could not teach us to sew whatsoever. <laughs> there was no one there who had the patience for us. So we ended up 
starting our own store plans or business plans with this program. And I turned the vintage clothing thing into my brand. So I started my own online store with graduating from there and it became Gwendolyn's Golden Eras. And that was a part of my graduating portfolio. So long story, long story. I ended up making it my business in 2016. So I have been selling full-time ever since then. Sometimes it goes back to part-time like it is now, but it's always something that's there and been a part of me for since then. <laughs> wow, that is so interesting. I, I thought to myself that that's a really good name that you have. So it makes sense that it was part of something bigger than just like a part-time sort of thing. I thought, um, wow, that's really clever that you were able to throw together that that title. It just it just sounds good. It has like a nice ring to it. And well, thank you. I can't help but think whenever you were yeah, whenever you were telling me about fashion school and those impatient teachers, I felt myself getting a little bit upset for you because I think it's a teacher's job to be patient. And I think that sometimes people think just because they're a teacher for adults that they don't have to be patient anymore because they're not teaching children. But anyone that's learning something new is in a sense like a child again and needs that patience and direction yeah. and maturity from their instructors. But I've had a lot of bad teachers too, especially once I left um, primary school, I've noticed teachers have gotten less and less involved and almost like less compassionate oh, so yeah. that's something for another day but I've thought about that myself and it's interesting that your story is kind of paralleling that I just think like why are you a teacher if you're so impatient and you're not willing to you know help people who are struggling a little bit 100%. but not everyone can handle a firecracker and I am one myself <laughs> yep I, I <laughs> so I can really understand not everyone knows <laughs> Yeah. And not everyone knows how to handle that, that kind of like spirit, I think sometimes, and it intimidates them, which that has a lot of parallels too, to what we're talking about just today and what I've been talking about a lot lately. Yeah. So I'm sure. so glad that you shared that with me. Yeah. It's so interesting. And it seems like you've come such a long way, but it all had a purpose to lead you to where you are now. And while I didn't have a lookbook myself, I remember I think I used it briefly or was using it for inspiration. And that's where I saw a lot of vintage looks too. But at the oh, time funny. I had no money. So I kind of just gave up on, I, I think I just kind of gave up on like, wow, I want to look like this. And I love these vintage looks, but like, there's no way that I'm going to be able to do that. And I remember watching old movies as a child too, thinking like, that's amazing. I want to draw these things. I would love to look like that. But I didn't even think you could get those clothes or I didn't think people knew how to do their hair like that anymore or anything like that. Like there just weren't that many resources. There's still, right. it's still kind of difficult to find. It's getting more easy, but there's, there's like this idea or interpretation of what the past was like. And I think some people think that means like really smooth, picture perfect, almost modern wavy hair or like styles that kind of like a lot of repro is in the style of vintage but not always perfectly accurate and and it's really easy to think that that's just what it was yeah and exactly I think for me it was a little confusing 
but it was yes. a stepping stone to get to this place and that's where we both are now and like you said i think people from our generation um that's kind of how they got there is through being interested in pinup stuff and then you kind of slowly progress or some people don't and that's fine too but for me i just once i got a taste of it i just wanted more authenticity and like more history and more i just wanted to figure out and understand it completely yeah exactly that's exactly where so, i'm coming from too <laughs> is the i guess the more historically accurate yeah. perspective where you tie it into just every bit of your life so i feel like i'm doing myself a disservice if I am dressing that way. I need to go the extra mile because I I need to get it correct if I'm going to represent whatever it is that I'm doing. And I feel like maybe that is a little much, especially just going out for every day, even to go to the grocery store. But I just don't feel complete if I'm I'm doing one thing. I need to do the rest or don't do it at all. But I, I guess that's maybe that's just me and some of us yeah. who do this. I just don't want to do anything halfway and i never want someone to question um whether or not something is accurate that i'm doing because i feel like i'm supposed to be representing it to the best of my ability at all times just with everything that i do yeah <laughs> i don't know maybe that's a little too much <laughs> i agree <laughs> well you also you know you have a business and you are into reenacting, you're into the vintage scene so much that it makes a lot of sense that you want to put your best foot forward. And it doesn't seem like it's out of wanting to be superior or anything like that. It's it's more about fully being enthusiastic for the history and for the art of, it's almost like living history sometimes for me too. I feel yes. like this is a more socially acceptable way to do like reenactment every day. Yeah. And I just love right. that idea of <laughs> it's like almost like you're acting. <laughs> yes. But and it, it's also something that's that's true to you. It is. And a part of me kind of dies inside when it at the end of the day boils down to, oh, this is just me and my delusion I'm living in. I am just playing pretend. I am just reenacting. I know there are some people who just enjoy wearing the clothing and that's it. But for me, it's my life and I do take it to the next level. So it kind of makes me sad sometimes that it's yeah. just this whole reality and delusion I've created for myself at the end of the day. And the rest of the world doesn't quite look like that sometimes. But I am just one of those people that yeah. other people are like, okay, she's a little on the extreme side then. <laughs> hey, I go big or go home, I guess. I totally yeah. can understand that. Yeah. The next, um, the next question I have is, <laughs> how is the scene different now compared to how it was whenever you first started wearing vintage, especially in regards to how people get their hands on vintage and shop for it, especially in the last five years? So I, I can say there's a huge difference from when I first initially got started between that point and the last five years. That time period. I would say in the last 10 years, um, that's kind of when a lot of social media was still in its infancy, I would say, with the rise of influencers and people having these online personalities. I think that's played such a huge role in 
the popularity of vintage. So a lot of people have capitalized on that, myself included. I'm fully guilty of that because I've been reselling since 2016 and I've seen so many trends come and go during that time. So because of social media increasing the popularity of these items, a lot of people have been trying to get their hands on it, whether it be online or in person. And it it's not as readily available as it once was when I first got started. I would go to thrift stores, like I mentioned. I shopped at antique stores, vintage stores, and so on. And I can say the the price that went along with that was drastically different than what we see now. And I think thanks to so many people and so much information being available online that everybody just knows what this stuff is now. So I can't just go down the street to Goodwill anymore and pick up a 1940s day dress. That Those days are long gone. And I think even I came in at the tail end of that 10 years ago. So in the last five years, I mean, you're yeah. seeing barely anything left in the stores, even pieces as old as the, not old as, new as the 70s is even getting harder to find mm -hmm. because thanks to social media and platforms like TikTok, it's become so popular, especially with Gen Z now wearing these pieces and showing it off and making these cutesy little videos that are very niche. It, it makes it so scarce because everybody wants a piece of it now just because of the appearance and not necessarily the historical value of it because everybody wants to look that way and you can't go and buy that in Forever 21. It's just not the same. So you don't find it as much as you did back then because everybody, it seems, is capitalizing on it one way or another, whether you're a reseller or whether you are just a influencer online. Interesting. So what I'm hearing is we used to be able to find it more readily in thrift stores. And I agree that I think whenever we were even like 10 years ago, it was still on the tail end of that, but you could still get lucky depending on where yeah. you lived. And every once in a while now I still get lucky, but it's very rare. And and it sounds like you're saying that um, because of the internet, because of influencer culture, because of content creators, because of people who are capitalizing on it in the age of the internet with so much information, it's becoming almost impossible to find this stuff out in the wild now. And oh, yeah. would you also say that the internet is now the place to hope to find vintage reasonably or realistically? Yeah, I mean, at this point, so many people know how to use it now. I think Poshmark even itself has become a go-to platform for the everyday person to list something from their closet because that literally is what it encourages you to do if you go on there, like to sell from your closet. So um, a lot of people have just turned into resellers. Just everyone's a reseller now. I mean, it, it's made it so easy to get yeah. into that. So I think once you get a taste of it and you see how easy it is to make some extra money just based mm -hmm. off of something that's sitting in your closet, it's so hard not to want to do more with it. 
So um, it's very yeah. tempting for everyone. <laughs> yeah. I was going to say that I totally understand and think it's a good thing to sell from your own closet. It makes sense. Um, otherwise, what are you going to do with it? You can donate it. That's fine, too. But if you want to make a little bit of money, it belongs to you. That's fine. Um, do you think that once some people got a taste of how easy it was to sell from their own closet, that it became even easier to think, why not go and find other people's discarded things and sell those, too? Because it's easy. It's profitable. It makes me a good amount of money without as much work as what I'm used to doing for a living, maybe even. Oh, yeah, 100%. I mean, look at it from the perspective of someone working minimum wage somewhere, and they're already thrifting in their free time. So why not go out and find a piece that you can make extra money off of to pay a bill? I mean, why wouldn't you want to with the kind yeah. of availability that we have now, thanks to the internet, you can, you know, really help yourself so there are pros and cons to all of it, I would say. I don't think there there are no yeah. bad intentions with those people because, you know, I've been in that boat. I I still every now and then every now and then am in that boat where the extra money really helps. It's it's not mm -hmm. necessarily all a bad thing. Um but pros and cons to every single thing, you know? Yeah. Yeah, and I'd like to talk about this too, because I think a lot of people are getting the impression that I'm against anyone reselling anything ever, even if it's from their closet, even if it's just every once in a while to pay a bill or something if they need it. And that's not even true. Um, I I think that if you are a regular at the thrift store, <laughs> I mean, I shouldn't have to say this, but I think if you're a regular oh, yeah. at the thrift store or you're struggling a bit, and you're looking through the racks and you see something that is a niche item that probably no one else is really going to appreciate or or want that you know might be worth a lot of money. Even if you can't use it yourself, I totally understand picking that up and turning it over for a bit of a profit. But I think the yeah. problem, it becomes a problem when you get a taste of that and then you take too much and you start doing that you start turning over the whole store looking for profitable items. I think that if you're doing this every once in a while to help pay off some bills or it's just an item that isn't going to be appreciated where you're at and you see it and you know you can get a little bit of money for it, I think that that's okay. And I think as long as you're not charging too much for it though, because I also want to say that I know some things have more value than others and I understand pricing accordingly for that but I think some people really do just want to get as much squeeze as much as they can out of that lemon and once they start making a habit out of that then something changes within us and yeah. it, it can become addictive and then you start doing it more and more and then you know you start seeing the issues we're seeing today so there's yeah. it's never black and white there's always gray areas <laughs> Yes, 100%. Um, I think a good example of this to maybe put it into a perspective where someone can understand from the reseller point of view um, and then getting just kind of burnt out because of exactly what you're saying. Um, I used to frequent estate sales a lot and I, I, I moved up to the town my husband and I currently live in and bought a house in about three years ago. 
and um, I began going to estate sales here locally. And there is a seller in town who sells vintage clothing, some of the best stuff, like stuff that would be worth a fortune online right now by current standards. And she's very reasonable. Um, she's still a little higher, but um, I consider it fair for what it is that she's selling. So I met her in person once and eventually I went to an estate sale one day where I saw her kind of in her zone where I'd never seen her like this before. Um, she was coming out with armfuls of clothing and I got to the sale late, so it didn't really phase me. I wasn't expecting to get much when I went in, but she had gotten there probably minutes before me and was coming out with just armfuls piled of dresses and coats and gowns. And it was just her behavior that kind of gave me a bad taste. And I hate to say this, God forbid if she sees this video, but um, it just, I don't know, it was kind of like greedy, nasty behavior and just throwing it on the table for the people to ring up at the estate sale and shouting out the prices to go ahead and get the heck out of there before anybody saw her. <laughs> it's a lot. Um, it makes wow. people, it, it changes you. It makes you so different because she's relying on it for the most part. I know she has a day job, but she's also relying on this for a lot of probably necessary income. And when you're doing that, it causes you to act a different way when you go into an estate sale, for example. And she saw me there. She knows me. She knew who I was. And I think she really wanted to leave because it, it's awkward because she sells to me, you know, at her price, not estate sale prices. So... I don't mind. I understand that's where she's getting this stuff from. And I am paying what I like to call a convenience fee. I didn't get to it first. She did, you know, fair game. So if you're going to put it in your store because I couldn't get to it first and you have a certain price that you want for it, I'll pay it as long as it's not unreasonable and you're not being greedy. So um, it, like I was trying to say though it's just the behavior that comes along with I guess getting all of these things and it it becomes things it's material items and yeah. it makes people just act bizarre over that because of the dollar sign associated with it yeah, yeah. and I really appreciate you saying that I couldn't help but feel a little emotional hearing about that just because I know I'm feeling that dropping feeling in my stomach of whenever I see somebody at an estate sale and they have so much, they're coming out with so much. And these are things that like, I would be very, very appreciative to have at estate sale prices. Right. And the fact that I, I do, I feel conflicted about the convenience fee. Yeah. Um, I understand it. I know that's how things work now, but I do feel conflicted about not being willing to to share maybe with someone else that arrives that you know is interested in the same thing. I have a conflicting feeling about the happenstance of getting somewhere first and thinking that that makes you entitled to everything of value that you want. And right. I'm not saying necessarily anything is right or wrong at this moment because I still have to process all of it. But I can tell you my 
my instinct feeling on hearing this and it's usually something that I want to listen to. So I'm just going to talk about this a bit and yeah, I, I just can't help it, but feel like it's a little bit unfair to say, oh, well, I got here first. This is all mine and too bad for you. If you want it, then if you want even a little bit of this pie, then you can pay my prices or nothing at all. And I just can't help but wonder how this person might feel if someone else got there first before them and they came out with all the things that they wanted. Would they feel the same? Would they want to go through their website and pay hundreds of dollars for an item that they picked up for maybe 50 cents from a sweet old lady who just thought maybe somebody wanted to appreciate her mom's dress or I don't know the situation, but I've been places where it's just like a bunch of nice old people selling things for 50 cents. And I was able to get a lot of my vintage from there. And I noticed that as the years went by, I kept going to these places and it would start filling up more and more with resellers. And then you just couldn't compete anymore because they have this extremely competitive spirit that makes me wilt inside whenever I come across it because it takes the fun out of it. Right, exactly. And then um, this feeling overcomes me of like, I don't even want to be here. Yes, there's a lot of that. And that's kind of what made me stop going to estate sales. Um, you know, I, I'm not going to sit here and act like I'm innocent in this because I'm 100% not. I am very guilty a lot of a lot of this uh, behavior yeah. that we're talking about. And I hate to say that, but I need to be honest. Yeah. I need to be honest with myself and other people who uh, are in this or may want to get into it. Um, I've been there before where my husband and I, we used to wake up gosh, at three in the morning to go to sales sometimes because we were relying on it. And that's just what we did. And what we were passionate about doing was, you know, getting this stuff and selling it. So um, we would stock estate sales weeks in advance, look through the pictures. I don't know if you've heard of this or heard of other people doing it, but you begin to figure out the layout of the houses from the pictures taking it to a new extreme yes so sometimes they'll post pictures of the closets with the clothing in it and you're like okay that looks like a bedroom and it looks like there is a master bathroom right off of it so i'm gonna think that that is the master bedroom where the clothing is located in you have to scout out a plan to get to the clothing when you get to the sale And my husband and I used to come up with plans like you go left when you go in and I'll go right and I'll let you know and I'll call out to you if I get to it first. It's extreme what people go to to be able to get to this stuff first at the sales because not only are you trying to get to it first, but you're also trying to compete with other people who may be getting to it before you who got there at the same time, if that makes sense. So it's a game. So whoever gets to it first essentially wins what's there. So I would do this. I would go to the closet and it's like you hear angels singing when you walk up and you see all the dresses hanging up in this poor woman's closet who probably is now passed away and you're fighting over it like vultures. It's disgusting, honestly. And, you know, I I did this. 
I did it. So you would go in, you grab as much as you can. You hardly even have a chance to look at the prices because you're just too busy grabbing the stuff. So you grab everything you can before someone else gets to it. And I've had people come up to me at estate sales and say, oh, are you getting all of that? And without thinking or hesitating, I'm like, yep, yep, it's mine, mine, thanks, bye. And you run out because, I mean, it's your money on the line that you are making from this stuff. So that's where it loses its sentimental value, which drives me nuts looking back now because um, you're just treating it like stuff, things, money. And this was someone's whole life. You're going into someone's life that is a, a living time capsule. And a lot of these sales would be houses from the 50s. So I imagine that they got married post-war when the husband came home, probably. And sometimes you can tell by the pictures in their house because their family photos are still in there that the family doesn't even want. So you're just going in and piecing away someone's life. And no one thinks about that. And it's sad. It breaks my heart. And sometimes I was always tempted to even take pictures of the woman whose clothing I'm buying because it's I'm taking so-and-so's dress from uh, her honeymoon. So should I be taking her picture from the honeymoon? It just feels right. It feels special. But a lot of people don't look at it like that because it's money. It's sad. Oh. Thank you so much for sharing that with me because I think it's so important. It's so important to talk about these things. And I really respect that you can say like, hey, I did this. I'm guilty of this. And you're able, like we're able to talk about things from both perspectives and understand the humanness on either side of this whole issue. And it, it definitely sounds like it takes some of the humanity away whenever you're just looking at how much you can get for something and then that competitive nature sets in and i i could feel the anxiety from that kind of situation of <laughs> needing to get there first because your your money is on the line and i felt that too going into even thrift stores sometimes like i need to get to the dresses right now what if somebody takes something there that is good and i don't get there first which nobody else is looking for that there right. it's like <laughs> 2 p.m and there's like three people in there looking at looking at sweatpants <laughs> but but i know that anxiety of that that mindset and it and it makes going to the thrift store and estate sales so draining i think too when it shouldn't be i think it should be something that's more pleasurable but that thing you said about the photos in their house really hits home to me because i have noticed there's always an abundance of photos at secondhand places that no one seems to want I can't help but wonder about their family dynamics. Like, right? <laughs> did they not want these pictures of their parents because they weren't good people? Yeah. Or do they just not care? There's so many explanations. But I've definitely wanted and I, I cherish pictures of the woman wearing the dress that I've owned before or the clothing. If I ever am able to get my hands on that sort of thing, it means so much more to me. But I honestly wonder with some of the types of people who collect and resell vintage I've heard them have not great things to say about the people that they might have gotten those clothes from. So it makes me wonder if like they wouldn't even maybe want those pictures or or cherish them at all. But but to me, it's a 
part of the puzzle and what makes it so appealing is knowing that someone lived in this item garment and they have memories there and they cherished it and there's like a whole relationship before you and and you're right whenever you're competing with others running to a closet it it reduces all of that to something so much less than giving them that dignity yeah and yeah. and it's kind of sad to think about I didn't yeah. know that people did the layout thing. It makes sense. <laughs> oh, yeah. So I think that um, it just, that's crazy. <laughs> yeah. And to uh, even dive further into that, um, waking up so early, <laughs> you know, getting up at three in the morning to go to a sale that doesn't start until nine in the morning, um, which is only 30 minutes away. And you have to wait in line at a house that entire time there was one time I can go into the full story it's kind of a long story but um, this is a great example that ties into it we went to a sale that was uh, a lot of military items from uh, a veteran who passed away I believe it was all one person stuff and my husband and I get there probably around four in the morning sale didn't start till nine probably there are men camping out in the driveway in lawn chairs long before we had gotten there. And we thought we were getting there early and we got out and talked to some of them. And a man had driven eight hours up to this sale from uh, way South Texas just to come to the sale in Dallas. And uh, they already had the police called on them for camping out in front of this house. The neighbors were concerned, like, what are these people doing in this driveway across the street from me? They don't live here. And all these cars are starting to line up. They didn't know the sale was going on, of course. But um, these people just turn into like this vulture mentality. And uh, they even were telling us, they're like, yeah, I drove eight hours up here. I came here specifically for this helmet and I know exactly where it's located when you walk in. Um, I haven't been in the house yet, but according to the photos, it looks like it's in this room on this table and I drove this far to get it. So I'm entitled to it. And they, they're laying the groundwork for everybody else waiting and probably there for the same item because I believe my husband was there because of the same item he had seen in the picture. So this poor man, I, I say poor man because I, I feel sorry for him in a way. <laughs> Everybody flocks inside the house once it opens up and he didn't get to the stuff in time. He drove eight hours for it. Other people beat him to it because they were in line before him. And he started crying. He threw a fit because that's what he came there for. And he was being such a baby about it that these people were like, look, man, you can just have it. Just take it. It's not worth all of this crying and being emotional for. So he got his baby way and left with what he came for. But it's just drastic, extreme behavior over these items and they're all resellers i i'm sure a few of them collect but they're all there to get whatever dollar sign they think they can get and fighting for the same exact thing and this is the same estate sale where my husband was actually hissed at by a grown man reaching for an 
item, this man literally hisses at my husband. So my husband's like, okay, I'll back off. You don't need to act all weird about that. <laughs> Just weird. I would have hissed back. I know. <laughs> I he should have. <laughs> I honestly, I know. A part of me is like, don't stoop to their level. But another part of me is like, well, if they're going to act like insane asylum people, like if they're going to act like that, then they deserve whatever they're getting. And that's really upsetting that I think if it was a collector, I would have had more compassion for the crying man. But if he is just there to resell, then I, I say, let him cry, but yeah. good for whoever took pity on him and gave him the helmet. I think that was very kind of them to do so. But I also am very disappointed with that man's behavior and yeah. the fact that he thought he was entitled and, and camping on the lawn and making neighbors feel unsafe. Um, right. That to me is very concerning that someone would do that just for a material item. Exactly. And I know it's more to that. It's more than that to some people. And it's more than that to me in a way. But at the same time, it's it's not worth it over, over something you can't take with you when you die. Like, just got to... Exactly. I, I think that hanging on to something to that level is dangerous um yes so i have another question before we take a break i just want to know about your experiences with where you like to acquire vintage and where you mostly are buying it from and if you've noticed a change in like where you get it from then as opposed to now yeah so um my husband and i we we make our rounds as we say around the Dallas area. We go to a lot of antique stores. We're regulars at many different stores from where we live to Dallas to Fort Worth and uh, everywhere in between. Um, there's a lot of vendors that we can kind of rely on and know that they always get really cool stuff in because they have the time and availability to get these pieces that we otherwise wouldn't be able to get. Um, over the last few years, it's become a lot harder to find them and expect them. Uh, it's very disappointing sometimes because we always like to try to get our fix, as we say. And um, sometimes that will take going to many different stores before you actually find something. And we used to just find a ton at every store. So um, the vendors that we're friends with at these antique malls even tell us it's just getting harder and harder to find for them. And they have to source way outside of where they usually do, which goes back to what you and I have been talking about, just, you know, traveling outside of your own area to even get to the stuff. So, yeah. Wow. Okay, that's very interesting. So I'm going to put us on a, a quick break and then come right back after. Perfect. Okay. All right.
Okay, welcome back from our break. I'm going to jump right into our next question. I wanted to know that since you like to buy vintage at independent places sometimes, do you think that the vintage shop owners who run these stores in antique booths know that the people who buy up a lot of merchandise to resell are doing that? Um, what do you think they would think of them flipping their goods for higher prices online or elsewhere, if at all? So a lot of people that I personally know and buy from, uh, locally, for example, they, they're familiar pretty much with me and what I do at this point. They know that I also have a vintage clothing booth in an antique mall. I don't know if I told you that, but um, my best friend and I have a vintage clothing booth together. So once you're kind of like a part of the same type of crowd that they're a part of, they understand that you're probably also selling things too in your free time. So I try to be as transparent as possible with people if I am, you know, reselling. Um, I'll always be sure to preface everything by letting them know, um, yeah, I wear it and collect it myself personally, but you know, whatever doesn't work for me or doesn't fit me, I usually will resell to make up for what I'm spending on myself or keeping and to cover our trip to wherever it is that we went to and to try to make sure that we're at least breaking even at the end of the day when we're buying from these people. So a lot of people know that, that I know at least, but I've heard about other sellers coming in that I personally know that are much more well-known in the vintage selling world that have been doing this for decades. They'll have bulk buys from these sellers that come to them. Um, there is a seller in Dallas with an amazing vintage store, and this more well-known dealer will frequently shop from her, but when he comes in, he's buying thousands of dollars worth of stuff. So at the end of the day, he's actually helping that business by purchasing so much from them. Um, they do know that it's most likely going to be flipped and resold at much higher prices to a higher-end clientele. So I think in that case, it is good for those businesses because a sale like that can really help them out. Now, for the people that come in that are, you know, buying a thing here or there and frequently do over time just to flip, I think they, they notice and they'll eventually see it online because trust me, I'm guilty of doing that too. I used to do that quite a bit. Yeah. And it's so awkward because eventually they know, I know you resold something that you got from my store because I saw it online. And I would know because they like it online and it's awkward. So I don't think they appreciate it very much. <laughs> I think it, it just makes the whole interaction or relationship that you have with them very awkward at the end of the day because it does feel like they were kind of taken advantage of. They're trying to offer these things for a reasonable price for the everyday person to come in and wear and enjoy. They didn't open a shop to be a wholesaler, if that makes sense. Because if they wanted to do that, Ooh, they would- That's they would pride, a wonderful, yeah. Yeah, they would pride their whole business then on being a wholesale source, not what, I don't know. I'm getting lost in translation here, but 
They no, are no, trying that's to perfect. Yeah, I just they're trying to, say, to provide. Oh, sorry. Oh, sorry. Go ahead. <laughs> oh no, I was gonna say that I love that you said that they're not there to be wholesalers because I think that's the point I'm really trying to get at is that these stores weren't designed to be the beginning where the middleman steps in and flips it. Like that's not the sole point of it. And I think a lot of people are acting like they're kind of entitled to treat it that way. And if they had nothing to hide, then why would it feel awkward or weird whenever they find out? Like there's something exactly. to pay attention to there. Exactly. If you know and feel that it's going to be awkward or bad at the end of the day, if that person were to find out, obviously you're doing something that is kind of secretive or almost like you're up to no good, but it's not like they're bad people. It's just that they right. are trying to do something behind the scenes to profit off of that they would hate for that person to find out about. Yeah, exactly. And I think that's just important to think about and pay attention to those feelings. Um, I was going to say that I did speak to someone on eBay who found out that her things were being flipped without her understanding or permission or knowledge, and she was not happy about it. And I actually brought it to her attention that someone was doing this with her items, and she, I didn't know how it would go because some people don't mind, but I remember that she was like, I appreciate you telling me um, I'm going to block this person so they can't sell anymore. And I just thought that that was really interesting that, that whenever I asked someone, they felt like it was unfair to them and secretive. And maybe not everybody feels this way, but I just think it's important to talk about at least this one reality of how someone feels that it has impacted their business, especially when it's being flipped for a lot of money. Right. Exactly. It it hurts um, being on that end of it. Cause I've also been on that end of it where I will sell something yeah. in good faith, like on Instagram, for example, knowing that it's going to go to someone who will really love it. And I think what hurts the most is that I'm selling pieces that I love, but I, I needed the money. So I would sell pieces from my own closet at a price that I thought was reasonable, but definitely not cheap. I would say uh, around what it should be worth. Like a blouse, for example. Here's an example I have on this. I, I had this beautiful lace blouse. It was from the 30s. And I thought to myself, well, you know, maybe I won't wear it that often. I could probably part with it and use the extra money right now. So I sold it for 75 bucks, which, you know, I thought that's quite a bit for a blouse. Um, I would pay that if I absolutely love something. So I try to base my prices off of what I would realistically pay if it was something I really loved. So yeah. I sold it for 75 and the person who bought it immediately flipped it on Instagram, which I found so funny because I follow them. They bought it from me. We had an interaction. And then all of a sudden, I see it on their Instagram the next week. I just, it blew my mind. It didn't, uh, I, I, yeah, obviously it bothered me because I, I would have kept it and worn it at that point had I known it was just immediately going to be flipped. 
I thought maybe they were going to wear it personally because, you know, all us resellers who dabble in our own stuff, we wear it too. But no, she immediately flipped it for, gosh, at least 150, if not pushing 200. And that's for a blouse. I just feel like that's a lot of money. But that's my opinion. So I don't know. I could be wrong. Maybe it is worth that much. Who knows? (laughs) Well, I think... It would be very difficult to find someone who would be willing to pay that much or able to pay that much outside of maybe the followers of a well-known platform who maybe have like pictures or or like the audience to draw people in and convince them that it's worth it. That's my personal opinion um, mm-hmm. because that is a lot for a blouse. I mean, $150, that's it's a lot of money. So... I can imagine that wouldn't have felt good when you saw someone doing that because they weren't even going to appreciate it. They just saw the value and or perceived value and they did whatever they wanted to do. I would love to see a picture of that blouse if you have it. I'll have to I, send it to you. I'll show my you. Next question. <laughs> I, I'd love to see. I So my next question is, I've heard of some people who go on buying trips to different states when they can't find vintage that they want to sell locally. For whatever reason, what do you know about this and what do you think about it in terms of sustainability for the vintage community for anyone that does reselling? So being in this reselling community for so long, it is impossible to say that I have not done this because I have. My husband and I have traveled to so many different places and states, and one of our favorite things to do is go to antique stores when we go to different towns, and some of our best trips have been to just the cutest historical towns in the middle of nowhere, and sometimes those stores have the best stuff because there are people that live there who don't really know what it is or appreciate it. So there have been times many years ago where we will just kind of wipe the town clean of their best stuff. That sounds terrible, but (laughs) that's what we did. And, you know, you go back years later and there's still nothing there since then, which is a shame because like once it's gone, it's gone in some of these places. Yeah. So we, like I've mentioned before, we we'll buy these items and keep a bunch for ourselves. And then whatever isn't necessarily within our interests or time period we really love, we will sell it. So for example, if I get a group of clothing that is 30s through 60s, I'll keep the 30s and 40s for myself if it works and I'll sell everything else that's either too big or much later than what I collect. Same with my husband, he has particular eras of either men's clothing or militaria that he will keep for himself within his interests as well. So sometimes, like I said, you will just wipe these towns clean of their amazing pieces that they were once able to get locally, and now they no longer have those available once you buy up all of them. So um, in the terms of sustainability, relying on it is unpredictable. If I were to still rely on that right now, sometimes you don't know where your next buy 
or cell is coming from. And that is such a stressful thing to rely on. And planning these trips, it, it's a toss up whether or not you're even going to walk away with anything anymore. I could plan a trip to Nebraska right now and go to a town in the middle of nowhere and say that I'm going to walk away with a lot. I could walk away with nothing right now. So relying on that as a business model is not sustainable whatsoever. And you're just, you're stressing yourself out at the end of the day and it loses its fun and special factor when you do these things. It no longer becomes fun anymore. It becomes a a scavenger hunt, really, at the end of the day. Yeah, no, absolutely. And what do you think these practices, how do you think they might influence like the hobbyist type of collector rather than someone who resells? Like, have you, I'm sure you've thought about it, but like, what do you think about it? From a collecting standpoint, it it makes it so depressing going to these places and hoping you'll find something and knowing that a few minutes ago, Mr. Seller just walked out with all this stuff that you would have loved for yourself. And now you're going to have to pay a premium online for that thing you traveled all the way there for to go get for yourself. So that that does suck. I can see it from both sides, though, because I know what it's it's like to want to go in and rely on buying it to sell. It's hard. It's so hard. That gray area, I don't know. I see both sides to it. (laughs) Yeah. No, and 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 like I said, I appreciate you talking to me about this because I'm not even judging you for (laughs) anything you've done or you're talking about. Like, I think you're an awesome person. And I understand there's definitely two sides to it. And it seems like, well, a lot of people think that I just hate everybody that's doing this. And that's just not the case. (laughs) And I've noticed, though, I've just noticed that it doesn't really seem to be a sustainable full-time job anymore for anyone. And it's getting to the point where you're not able to really find vintage so easily anymore that it's driving I think a divide in our community a bit because we're in such competition to get these pieces. And if you can't afford them, then there is that resentment towards people who are buying everything up at the prices you were able to afford them. So it's just so complicated. And, and I don't feel resentment towards you. That's not what I'm saying. I'm, (laughs) I'm saying that I just feel, how dare you? Sometimes I do feel some resentment whenever I know, I know. I'm hanging up now. But <laughs> but it's it's just hard not to feel a little something whenever I see someone selling like a really nice 30s or 40s day dress for like $600 on their website and they t- they took some nice photos in the woods on some <laughs> very like elegant models and then that's for me it's just not enough. I don't want to pay the extra money just to see this dress on an elegant model in the woods. Like I'd rather not if I can get it for, you know, a fair price and maybe some people that's what sells it for them, but are they really the true passionate enthusiasts then if that's what it takes for them to want to buy a vintage dress is what I'm wondering. I think a lot of the people that are paying these really high prices are not going to be like the main audience of like vintage lovers and collectors, perhaps. Um, 
they, or they're maybe buying it for the aesthetic of the the photographs rather than the item itself and i've been there so i can kind of understand how that would be appealing so i don't know yeah a hundred percent um i know a lot of stores that i follow on instagram are kind of modeling themselves based off of a lot of modern designers brand campaigns they'll see something that maybe Gucci comes out with and they're like, you know what, I can do that with my 1930s crochet dress. And like you said, go to the woods and photograph it on a paid model. I can make it look exactly the same and charge the same price that Gucci or Prada is charging for the same thing that they're coming out with. And they're just capitalizing off of a brand or an image that appeals to a modern audience. And they're trying to figure out how can I sell my vintage to not only the vintage community, but also a community that really loves these modern brands and their ad campaigns. So I don't think they're in it for the same reasons that you and I would be into it necessarily. Totally not from a historical standpoint and much more from a modern fashion designer standpoint. Wow, that's such an articulate point that you're bringing up. And I love that you said that they're mimicking modern day campaigns because they really are. And I knew this, but I wasn't able to articulate it like that. So it's really helpful to hear you say that because I've noticed too, they look very artsy, creative, Mm -hmm. like beautifully done. I will give them that. But a part of me wonders like, does all this entitle you to charge prices for things you're not making or designing yourself? That's the big question I have that that feels almost like like delusional in a way like a weird reality of like maybe some people think that they are like these on the same level of these fashion designers and creating these collections for people and while that's a lovely dream and thought and I think a lot of people into fashion have those fantasies perhaps that I'm not quite sure that it's the most responsible thing to do it with vintage clothing that is already in such high demand by a wide range of income and people. So it's, it's very complicated and it has gotten very, very artistic and high budget lately, which again, never would have happened before. So it's just, it's trendy now. Oh yeah. hundred (laughs) percent. Did you want to say anything (laughs) about that or should I go to the next question? Oh no, you can go ahead. I'll just keep rambling. (laughs) Okay. Okay. I know it's easy. It's easy to talk about this stuff all day, isn't it? Oh yeah. That's all I talk about. Clothing. More specific. Yeah, me too. So my next question is at its source, vintage clothing, more specifically from thirties to fifties, maybe even previous. Do you think that it's running out? Like some people say that it is to the point of, they are demanding these high prices and they are worth those high prices because people are saying you just can't really get it anywhere anymore and it's so scarce and rare this is why i'm charging you a thousand dollars for a dress like what do you think do you think that's true so i think that from the source itself when let's say someone from the greatest generation passes away I think that obviously is going to become a little more difficult because that generation is on Mm -hmm. its way out. 
sadly, which breaks my heart because they're my favorite people in the whole world. But they don't have very much longer until we now cross into that next generation that becomes the oldest. So the people who were in their prime, let's say in the 40s, they were in their 20s during that time wearing this very fashionable clothing and shopping for it and have held on to it all of these years. That is, you know, the clothing you're getting straight from the source when they pass away is what they've held on to since their prime. So um, eventually, if not already, it's becoming uh, harder to get that because it's now in the hands of so many collectors. Um, I believe a lot of people have been collecting this, gosh, since the 70s. And um, that's why I feel it feels like there's less of it because these people have been holding on to it and continuing to collect it for so long. So eventually, I think what we're starting to see is when those people pass away, then it's going to seem like so much is available because the people who have been hoarding just hundreds of day dresses, they're now passing away, therefore making it available all over again. And then the cycle continues. So um, I think straight from the source with those people, it is um, harder to find because there's less of them. A lot of uh, that generation is, you know, not really there anymore. So um, now it, the, the source will then become collectors unfortunately yeah but i do want to ask just because i've noticed some things myself do you think that so i've noticed that there's still people coming out with new collections all the time like um vintage resellers who have a larger platform every season they seem to come out with with new collections every week they seem to be washing and mending new things to sell. I'm wondering if it's so scarce, then where do they keep getting this stuff? Like, is it really quite as scarce as they're saying, or is it just changing where we can find it? Or are they getting to it first and they're getting really good at that is kind of what I'm wondering, because if it's so scarce, how do they keep having new stuff coming in all the time? Right. So, um, going back to what I was saying about collectors, I think, um, for example, women who have been collecting this stuff since the 70s when it was not as popular, they're starting to liquidate their own collections because they're getting up in age, they have no use for it anymore. And those are the people that these um, popular sellers are getting buying appointments with. Um, it becomes like who you know and um, building these relationships with these longtime collectors um, and you know, being able to access all of it all at once from these people is amazing as a, a reseller or a collector. Um, I've yeah. met a few of them. I'm actually friends with someone who is the perfect example of this, who lives in my town. She's been wearing and collecting since the 70s when you could go and get it at the thrift store for 50 cents all day long for pieces, you know, from the 20s and so on. So she has an entire warehouse filled with this stuff and she is just now beginning to let go of most of it because she just has no use for it anymore she used to have a brick and mortar store and now she doesn't so um 
if you're wondering where this clothing all goes to, a lot of these people hoard it and have it and have these big buildings where they keep all of it. They keep it in storage. So um, it may seem scarce, but I believe it's scarce because it's hoarded. And I think that can be said about every single type of um, hobby when it comes to vintage or antique, whether it be, you know, vintage clothing or military items. I think we all kind of have this addiction or disease to where we just want more and more and more of it. And we're seeing that with these older collectors who have been there, done that. And that's why there's not a lot out there because they all have it. <laughs> that makes sense. Okay. Yeah. Thank you. That, that does make a lot of sense. I don't see a lot of people who were my age in the seventies wearing vintage these days. So mm -hmm. that's why I guess I never really thought that they were the ones with these big collections they're sitting on, but I guess it makes sense. They're out there. Yeah. They're out there. Do you there. think yeah. that, um, have you, yeah. Have you found it to be true that clothing that you buy at either estate sales or just secondhand sources in general need a lot of repair work usually to make them sellable? Yes and no. Um, I would say pieces that have been in trunks for a hundred years from an estate sale, you're probably going to find damage with those, whether it be from water damage or mold, um, pieces that have not been soaked or washed for a hundred years. Yeah, you're going to encounter a lot of that. Um, sometimes at a thrift store, you'll find a dress that is beautiful but maybe has some seams that are busted or popped and you just whip it through a sewing machine really quick but um i mean i i rarely come across pieces that are just in tatters unless it's edwardian or older then it's just shattering but um that's just my personal experience maybe other people are finding just large amounts of vintage that are messed up that they're mending all the time, but I guess I've lucked into some things that don't need a lot of help, but that's just me. I found it too. Whenever I would find pieces from the thirties or forties at the thrift stores, when I was growing up, usually nothing needed a whole lot of work except for maybe a couple of popped seams just from old thread. So I just think it's interesting that I've heard the argument a lot of resellers say to justify their high prices is that it needs so much repair and rehabilitation work. And I can see how some pieces may be, but I don't think as a whole that's as accurate for, for the majority of the pieces that I've seen anyways. <laughs> so right. just looking for, for holes in that basic <laughs> to understand it. Yeah. Um, what and why do you think people are still selling wounded items for a lot of money then that need a lot of repair work like larger name resellers are, are still selling things that need a lot of work for a higher price so i think everybody wants to jump on a certain trend or a bandwagon with a certain era or item for example, the one that I use the most is that late 30s, early 40s silhouette that everybody is so obsessed with, including myself. Mm -hmm. If you see those gorgeous puff sleeves and in a 
beautiful pastel rayon crepe with, you know, dainty little bows or details, regardless of the damage it has, people are going to try to ask for as much as they can to capitalize on that trend. So even if it has underarm stains and moth holes and fading to the dye, they're still it seems charging the same amount that others are charging for a pristine item and getting it at the end of the day. So I believe it just goes back to trends that everybody wants a little slice of. Yeah. Okay. So they just want to get as much as they can for it. If it's something that they believe is, is worth it and of value. That makes sense. Yeah. Do you remember the, the story you told me about getting elbowed over Bakelite. <laughs> and I was yes. wondering if you could just tell me about that because I thought it was a good story. Oh my goodness. So this is another estate sale horror story. Um, I don't think I woke up super early for this one, but I had seen some pictures in the listing for the sale of a ton of jewelry. That's what the focus of the whole sale was, was a whole just table of Bakelite, like a large eight foot table with glass cases, just beautifully laid out. So it was very tempting. I didn't think anything of it though. All I knew was that, you know, Bakelite is valuable. Maybe I can look into a few things to resell and keep for myself. I didn't realize that there is a craze behind it. I know that now, but back then I was still new and had no idea the links that people go through to get Bakelite. So I'm waiting in line as I usually do for the open of this sale. And there's like 30 to 50 women lining up. And a lot of them came with friends and uh, were talking about the value of these pieces and what they think they could get for them before we even walk in. So, um, I asked the person at the door as they're letting people in, which way is the jewelry? And he's like, oh, good luck with that. It's there in the living room. He was already laughing about it because he <laughs> knew that the floodgates had opened. So I get to the living room and they're just swarming like bees around this table. And I am four foot ten and very short. So I'm having a hard time even seeing over these people trying to see what's at the table. And um, I try to say, excuse me, excuse me, do you mind if I get by to see what's up there? And they're scoffing at me and looking at me like I am crazy for even asking them to move out of the way to even see what was on the table. They're grabbing and picking and asking the person behind this counter, can you show me this? Can you show me that? I'll take all of those bracelets. And I don't even know what's up there yet. So I finally maneuver my way around someone. I had to move myself sideways to even see what's at the table. And this woman comes up to me and moves my shoulder out of the way with her elbow to pry me out of the way to see around me. And I said, excuse me, did you just elbow me? And she acts like she didn't even hear me. She continued to tune me out, tune everybody else out who was also trying to get around her and starts grabbing the stuff I was looking at or trying to look at. 
So it was a free-for-all. It was like Black Friday on steroids. You would have thought it was a flat screen TV that these people are fighting over for $10. I mean, it was a madhouse. I've never seen grown women act like this before. It was awful. Awful. Wow. <laughs> sounds like sounds like you need a tall friend to go with you. Yes, that would be I'm wonderful. I'm five nine, so I feel like maybe they wouldn't have. They might not have tried tried to do that to me. That would be nice. They would. I'll use you, you as a human shield next time. Do you think that? Honestly, I, in situations like that, it's like the like the bodyguard in me kind of comes out because I just don't like whenever people act like bullies and it's just gross. It's like, it sit is. down, stop it. Yeah. <laughs> what, do you think that estate sales were always this competitive or have they evolved to be more cutthroat as online reselling has grown in popularity? So being that I've only been in it about 10 years, I don't, recall it ever not being that way. Um, as soon as I started getting into estate sales, I noticed how competitive and aggressive people can be. Um, I feel like since eBay has been around probably that they most likely have always been this way. And maybe I just wasn't aware that it existed until then. Um, but gosh, in recent years, I feel like it's only gotten worse with all the other online yeah. platforms available and more people finding out about being able to do it. That makes a lot of sense. So I wanted to ask what, why do you think some people aren't listing their prices that they're selling for, especially on Instagram? They'll say things like direct message me for more info or like ask me for the price for the tag. And then you can get the price if you message them directly. Like, why do you think that they do that as a, someone who has reselling experience? Yeah. So when I first started reselling on Instagram, I was trying to model what I was doing doing and selling based off of other sellers and how they did their listings on there. So I would actually do that. I would say direct message me for a price because I noticed everybody else was doing it, but I felt like it was kind of a known but hidden secret with resellers that you don't want to show your price on your pictures because you don't want to scare them away. You, you want them to message you first and get them on the hook. And um, I feel like once you kind of have them in a conversation about this item, then it kind of maybe puts pressure on them to buy the item. Like they feel like they have to because they don't want to offend you. They don't want to look less than. They don't want to appear that they can't afford it. So they are, you know, putting these buyers in a situation where they can't really back out at that point. And it's awkward. And I actually stopped doing it for that reason. I felt that it was almost like pressured sales. And I'm so not a fan of that. And that's, that's one of my many reasons for just quitting doing a lot of things that I have done in the past. And I don't like it. I don't like it at all. I feel like either be transparent or don't do it at all. I agree. And it's, 
I'm glad to hear you say that and confirm it because that's what I sensed it was about. And I thought mm -hmm. to myself, like, man, I just wonder why so many otherwise decent people are, are kind of putting potential buyers in that situation because it does feel like you're wasting their time if you don't buy it. And right. it's really hard to back out of. It's possible. I've done it before, but it doesn't feel good. And then I feel tired afterwards and kind of like sad or something. It just, it feels like a play on your, it's like psychological. Yeah. It's psychological. And I'm trying to get better at, at that. But I usually, I'll tell you, me and other people I've talked to, usually we'll pass those listings by, even if we like the item, if someone is saying DM me for the price, just because it's gotten to a point where it does feel like icky or manipulative. When yeah. I think if the item is good, it's going to sell itself. And it gives people more time to think about it if you're just honest and upfront about it. And I think that's better for your business as a whole. So I'm glad that you started doing that. Yeah, I, I um, definitely so almost, started doing it. Oh, sorry. Oh, no, you're fine. I, I've only started doing oh, no, that going, probably, <laughs> probably the last two years, I want to say. It could be more recent, could be more older. But um, I did notice that I got a better um, message rate. I want to say once I started showing what prices the items were. So it also is better for the seller because then there's less questions that you have to be confronted with and you can get to the point. Do you want the item or not? Yes or no. Great. Here, let's, you know, go through with the transaction. You're cutting into your own time and wasting your own time by having them message you in the first place to ask about that price. So I think it's beneficial for both sides to just be transparent from the get go. 100% agreed. Yeah. I also wanted to ask, since we're on this subject, what are your thoughts on resellers who don't accept returns under any circumstances, even if they're in the wrong? Have you experienced like seeing other people doing this? Like, what do you think about it? So this one's a tough one for many reasons. Now, if you're not being upfront about the damage an item has and selling it hoping that you don't have to suffer any consequences and they'll just deal with it and you get a higher price than you otherwise would for you know listing all of those flaws i don't like that obviously that's wrong and to not be able to offer returns in that case is very wrong and you're pretty much hurting the buyer in that situation but the flip side of that from the seller standpoint um, when you say that you're offering returns and that option is available, that is also opening up the door to buyers who could possibly take advantage of that and um, say that, you know, this item is gross and it smells bad. I want all of my money back and I would also like to keep the item, which is something I've dealt with before, where I will not only refund someone, it, they will also keep the item and I feel like possibly taken advantage of that maybe there was bad intentions behind that and they know they can get away with it. Um, there's, I think, good and bad people on both sides, whether it be buying or selling. And there are people who know the loopholes with systems like eBay, for example. And my husband and I have encountered people that feel like they do this regularly to get their money back and also keep the item at the end of the day. So 
even if you say you don't offer returns, they know that through eBay, they can still win and get entitled to whatever they want at the end of the day. So um, I think there's flip sides to both of those things. I don't know. I'm, I'm glad you said that because I do agree with you. I think it's fine to say you don't accept returns, just to clarify. But if there's an actual problem, like you missed some details that were very important, or if the item's not wearable, then I think it's so important to be upfront about that. And the people who are customers who are taking advantage, I think that maybe Amazon has spoiled them and they think that you can get a return and keep your item and get your money back. But that's not fair either. And I think if something really didn't work out for someone, then they wouldn't want to keep the item anyways. So yes, there's 100%. something fishy going on there. Oh my gosh, exactly what you that's said right. about that, the Amazon mentality where people think that these used and vintage goods are the same thing as an Amazon purchase that they they got it and you know they didn't know it was going to smell like mothballs they're like okay well this is returnable just like I do with Amazon I I you know they they I feel like they take advantage of a small business or a small little store owner versus a, a big corporation where you can just do stuff like that and it doesn't affect them whatsoever. Yes. So I agree. Don't do that, people. That's right. not what I'm talking about here. <laughs> just to be clear. Uh, so I have two more questions for you. I, I saw something not too long ago about some resellers feel like they shouldn't or will not share any knowledge they have about taking care of a garment or maybe how to repair something. They get a lot of questions from potential customers asking them just a little bit about their knowledge. And some people feel very strongly against sharing that and have shown annoyance and disdain for those people. I'm just wondering like what your approach is for that. And what do you think of having that attitude as opposed to maybe being more willing to engage about those topics? I think it all boils down to what kind of person you are and how willing you are to help people. And I think a lot of people want to hoard knowledge for themselves to appear like they are the authority and the expert. And they feel that maybe if they give that knowledge away, once everyone has it, they won't feel so special anymore or appear like the authority. But I feel like that should just be, you know, free and open knowledge. I mean, when I got started, I didn't have any friends that I could talk to about how to wash something or repair something. And the amount of garments I have damaged in that process is unbearable. I don't even want to talk about it. But had I had someone <laughs> that I could talk to to prevent that from happening, would have been amazing. And I did have to learn so much on my own that I feel like, you know, being just uh, an open source for people, if you do have that knowledge, could benefit so many people. I mean, I, I've tried my hardest to help people who are new and coming into the hobby. 
Um, I do have a group that my friend and I started locally called the Women's Vintage Society of Dallas. And we have new people that join us every single day that ask, hey, I've never bought vintage before. Where do I buy it? How do I find it and care for it? I mean, if you're not helping those people, how can you expect new people to come into the community that you can be friends with and enjoy this with? Then it becomes so exclusive and almost like a click if you're not willing to share that. Yeah. So that kind of leads into this next part of the question was how can we as a community make vintage more ethical and sustainable for anyone who wants to enjoy it or even to sell it? Like, is there anything that you can think of that you would give as advice, I suppose? Oh, there's so many things I could say, but I think we as this little community of vintage weirdos that we are, I feel like someone is going to have to make a stand like you have been to say, you know what, these prices that you're asking, they're artificial. Like, what are they actually based off of? And until we all come together and say, you know what, no, I am not going to pay $800 for a day dress. It's only going to continue. I think we all need to reel it back in a little bit and take a stand and say, these are other people's things that they once loved and wore and they are used items. These are not designer goods. They're pieces that are practically hand-me-downs. They're very well-made garments, don't get me wrong, but we're all dabbling in used items. So until we all come to that fact yep. and get back to the root of it, I feel like this awful cycle of price gouging is gonna continue. And people are going to keep taking advantage of other people coming into it, not knowing better. So we just all need to be uh, a friend to one another and at least come together on that one fact. You don't have to agree with everything else that we say or do, but, you know, at least be a friend to people coming into this hobby. I think that's beautifully put. And the very last thing I wanted to ask you is could you tell me what you know about the infamous topic of cold calling relatives of the deceased? It's caused a lot of controversy. Oh boy. So everything I know about this, of course, is, you know, secondhand information or rumors I have heard and my husband has heard through his friends, but there are sellers and dealers out there that will keep up to date on obituaries of people who have passed away locally. And they will especially look into veterans that have passed away, for example, and they will go as far as to call the wives of these men who have passed away to see if they have any military items of value that this person would be willing to part with. And just, you know, it's that vulture mentality where they, they're literally waiting on this person to die to get their hands on this stuff. And then approaching a family member who's in a very vulnerable position, they're upset, they just lost their loved one, 
So of course, they're probably trying to recoup some costs from who knows what, a funeral and so on. So they're just taking advantage of people grieving and buying whatever they can from someone who just passed away. It's very gross. And that does exist for sure. Yeah, I, I figured there's a lot of rumors, but I know there's got to be some truth to it. I just don't have as much cold hard proof right now, but I feel like I don't need the exact like video of someone cold calling the deceased to know that it wouldn't be above some of the behaviors we've witnessed ourselves. So right. that's, it's sad to take advantage of someone's vulnerability like that. And I mean, I'm not surprised, but that's kind of where some of the more extreme examples of reselling have come to. And that's just one of the things that I'm here to talk about, to let people know about, to educate, to say, hey, this is what's going on. If you have a problem with it, I want you to think about that for yourself and kind of decide where you draw the line and where we should be standing on this issue as a community. And if we're going to feel comfortable buying from someone who does things like this, and we should all be talking about it. Like there's no reason for us to be awkwardly quiet about it anymore in fear of retaliation or not feeling like someone agrees with us because there's plenty of people out there, us both as an example, that we have feelings on this. And I think it's time to talk. It's time to talk about it. Right. It's very important that we do or else these things are just going to keep continuing. Exactly. And before we wrap up, is there anything else I didn't ask you or that you wanted to cover or say before we go? I just want people to take away from this and everything that you're doing, that you're coming at this topic from the best of intentions. And it does upset me that a lot of people have misconstrued what you're trying to say and get across. So I, I hope that maybe this clarifies some things and with what you're continuing to do, we'll continue to clarify it. And that if someone disagrees with you on anything, I, I invite them to maybe even come on here and have a very um, civil debate about it. And maybe we can all come to some kind of uh, agreement on something. Maybe every perspective is necessary yeah. to hear and I'm sure everybody has something valuable to put into this conversation. I agree with you. I think that there's lots of valuable perspectives and lots of people that I definitely have had some butting of heads with in terms with in terms of how we feel about this topic. I would definitely welcome respectful and civil conversation. I think the issue is a lot of people that have been contacting me or commenting on my page have not been. Um, I've just been noticing a lot of like silencing behavior or people just telling me that they're unsolicited advice that I'm wrong or that I shouldn't be doing this. And I think that that's not the way to get someone to listen to you. That feels like, I don't know, I feel like I'm trying to be, someone's trying to control me and shut me up rather than I just if, if you feel differently than I do, that's okay. And I would rather just hear your opinion without you telling me your opinion on me and what I'm doing. I think that there's a way right. to separate those things. 
and that makes exactly. it more valid and easier to digest. So, so I do welcome anyone that wants to talk about this civilly. And I think that we all are going to be able to have more in common than we think. And mm -hmm. I think it doesn't need to be polarizing. I think people don't need to be blocking me because they're saying I'm anti-reseller, which is a very, I mean, it's very extreme. And I don't think that I've ever said that. So no. it's just important to think for yourself, get all the information, read what they're saying, read what I'm saying, and listen to what I'm saying. And I think you'll see there's a difference here in how we're presenting these opinions. And I'm here to talk about this and I'm here to educate and I'm not here to tell you what to do or who to align yourself with. So that's why I'm here. Glad you're talking to me about this. And I'm so glad that you came on the show because I think your perspective is much needed and very valuable. Well, thank you. And I'm honored to be a part of this and everything you're doing. So I, I wish you all the success with this podcast and show you're doing. It's wonderful. Thank you so much. All right. That's a wrap for the day. Thank you everyone for listening and checking out what we have to say about other people's things. Have a wonderful week, everyone.